If you picked up a bulletin on the way in, there should be some sermon notes you can track along with the message this morning. Our passage is 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 to verse 10. I mentioned this at the beginning of the service. We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are not going to come by with the elements and pass those out to you. So if you would like to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, if you'd like to participate uh, at the end of the sermon, the elements are located in the back of the room on both sides. And you're more than welcome to hop up and grab those so that you're ready to go here in just a few minutes. This year we're reading the New Testament together. We have come this last week to the book of 1 John. Uh, If you're a type A personality like me, this was a great week because this was a week where we read only one book and all of one book in a particular week. So we didn't have to move from book to book. We didn't leave any chapters hanging, but we got to read all of 1 John this last week. Some of you were here and you remember the summer of 2020. Some of you have blocked that summer out from your life and you don't remember it, but summer of 2020, we went through, over the summer months, the book of 1 John and we went verse by verse, passage by passage, we talked about this wonderful little book uh, that you come to at the end of our New Testaments. This morning, our passage is chapter 1, verse 5 to 10, and I just want to start with a few contextual things to help us understand what we're about to read. 1 John was written by, are you ready for this? John, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, the apostle Jesus loved. There are a lot of Johns floating around in the Bible. There were a lot of Johns floating around in the first century. This is John, the son of Zebedee, brother of James, the apostle that Jesus loved. Maybe you remember that James and John as a duo, brothers, had a nickname And their nickname was the Sons of Thunder. Jesus gave them this nickname because one time when Jesus preached in a Samaritan village and they essentially ran Jesus out of town, it was James and John who came to Jesus on the outskirts of that city and said, do you want us to call down fire to destroy these people? And Jesus, in a very Jewish way, said, take a chill pill. Calm down, we're not going to blow anybody up today, but he nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder. I just want to point out to you that by the time you get to the end of John's life, he had moved on from that nickname. If you've ever been stuck with a nickname, you know it can be hard to move on from a nickname. But John moved on from this nickname, and at the end of his life, he was known as the Apostle of Love. The Apostle of Love. He got this nickname because more clearly than any of the other New Testament authors, he talked about the love that God has for sinners. And I just want to show you rapid fire a few verses that helped John get this new nickname. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John chapter 13. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the immediate end is that he washed their feet, and the ultimate end is that he died for their sins on the cross. Just a few verses later, John 15, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So the the object of love is turned around here. Yes, Jesus has shown God's love for us, but now we are called to show love to each other. 1 John 
chapter 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And certainly we would want the love of the Father to be in us. And we hear this warning, do not love the world or the things in the world. One of my favorite verses in 1 John, 1 John 4.10, in this is love, it's not that we have loved God, but it's that he loved us. Every believer has to have this settled in their mind and their heart, that the reason you have a relationship with God is not that you made the first move towards him and he responded towards you in love, but it's that when you were lost and dead in your sins, God had love for you. His love precedes our love. One more verse, Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. I just think it's a beautiful picture of what the gospel can do in a person's life. That a man who was once known for his temper and his desire to blow up a whole town is transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ so that at the end of his life, people say, look, if you want to learn about the love of God, you need to talk to John. It's a remarkable transformation. It's the kind of transformation that hopefully is in process in all of our lives. So John is the apostle of love. He is a prolific author. And I've just given away the next thing that I want to share with you. But he's a prolific author. He's written five books in our New Testament. That would be the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. I know there's some debate and question about whether John that we're talking about is the author of these books, but this is the traditional answer, and I think it's the best answer. John wrote a large part of our New Testament. 1 John in particular was written for a purpose. John wrote the letter of 1 John, number one, to promote holiness, and number two, to give Christians assurance of their salvation. There are a number of verses we will not look at now, but I've listed some of them for you in 1 John where John says, I have written these things to you, I have written to you so that. He just tells us why he wrote the book. Many of these verses he says, I'm writing to you so that you don't sin. I'm writing to you so that you don't have hatred towards your brother. But the key verse is 1 John 5.13 where he says, I am writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John wrote so that we would have assurance of our salvation. Now one of the great ironies 2,000 years later in the United States of America is that when many people read 1 John, people tell me this all the time, when I read 1 John, I question my salvation. You understand, that's not why John wrote 1 John. He wrote it to give us assurance of our salvation. But many of us, because of the sad state of the church in the United States of America and the less than fully biblical gospel that we have heard, have deceived ourselves and we think that we have life because maybe a preacher has told you that you had life and you don't have life. And that questioning and that convictioning that you feel from the book of 1 John is the Holy Spirit saying to you, you've missed the whole point of the gospel from, from the get-go. This book is not written to make you fearful. 
It's not written to make you uneasy. It's written to give you assurance and to give you hope. 1 John, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, the first little part is the introduction. It's the prologue. It's a wonderful section. As I found myself preparing for verse 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, I kept wanting to go back and say things about the first paragraph. We just don't have a lot of time to talk about it. I wanted to talk about how the, the opening paragraph ties to the book of Genesis. I wanted to talk about how the prologue of 1 John lines up with the prologue of the Gospel of John. They're parallel in nature. I wanted to talk about how for John, none of this stuff is hearsay. John says, I'm an eyewitness. I saw Jesus. I touched Jesus. I listened to Jesus. I walked with Jesus. I was with Jesus. And John writes these things not so that you would be fearful, but he says it right here in verse 4, so that your joy might be complete. If you want to know true and lasting joy, do not love the world or the things in the world. If you want to know true and lasting joy, you need to know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that brings us to the big idea of our, our particular passage. It's a little bit longer than some of the big ideas I share with you, but this is a beautiful gospel passage. Here it is. God is holy. Man is sinful. Jesus is the answer. And we must repent and believe. That's the big idea of the paragraph that we're about to work through. God is holy. Human beings are sinful. Jesus is the answer. And we're all called to repent of our sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If that sounds familiar to you, it may be that you've gone on a mission trip with us. And you've sat in some sort of evangelism training that we've offered to those who go on a mission trip with Emmanuel. It may sound familiar to you because you've sat in this room and you've listened to me preach sermons where almost every week I walk through some version of this combination of truths. That God is a holy God, we are sinful people, our only hope is Jesus, and the call on our lives is to repent and to believe. That succinct gospel summary, as it's worded in that way, comes from a man named J.I. Packer. He wrote a book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's a very short book, but if you want to grow as a theologian and you want to grow in the area of personal evangelism, this is a wonderful book that I would commend to you. He summarizes the gospel in this book in this way, God is holy, man is sinful, Jesus is the answer, we're called to repent and to believe. And this is the big idea of our passage this morning. So take your copy of the scriptures. I'm going to read these verses. The Bible says this, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, 
we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Father, this morning we're thankful for the scriptures. We're thankful for a year to read through the New Testament together, and we thank you for the book of 1 John. Lord, we pray that this book would accomplish its end in our lives, that it would promote holiness, that it would grant us assurance of salvation, and that all of these things would come to to reality as we think about the nature of the gospel message. Guide our thinking this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Question number one, as we jump right into this passage, how does 1 John 1, 5 to 10 shape the way that we think about the gospel? It's a simple passage, and I just want to walk through it and think about these four gospel truths with you this morning. Number one, the holiness of God. God's holiness is the central and foundational truth about who God is. If there is one basic thing that a person needs to learn about God, it is this one basic thing, that God is holy. Now, the word itself doesn't show up in our passage, but you see in verse 5 and then again in verse 7, John talks about God being light. He is light, verse 5. Verse 7, he is in the light. This image of light is a metaphor. You can see it in the Gospel of John as well. It's a metaphor for the holiness of God. And it's no coincidence that many times when the Bible talks about people encountering God in His holiness, there's a description of light, of very bright light. God is holy. That's a hard biblical word to sum up in one English word. Maybe the best we could do is to use a number of words. To say that God is pure. He is whole. He's complete. He's perfect. He's unique. He's set apart. He's the creator and he's glorious. These are the most central and basic truths that you need to understand about who God is. Essentially what we're saying is that He is God and He alone is God. No one else falls into His category of existence. He is absolutely and utterly unique. The Bible talks about God's holiness more than all of His other attributes combined. When you read through the Old Testament, you read through the New Testament, you read about what God is like. The Bible says that God is holy more than all the other things it says about God combined. Once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament, the Bible describes God as holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4. It's what theologians call the trisagion. He is thrice holy. He is supremely holy. God is holy. Many times today, people talk about the gospel and they jump right in with you and me. If you want to understand the gospel from a biblical standpoint, you don't start with human beings. You don't start with who we are. You don't start with what we need to do. You start with God and you start with this basic truth that God is holy. Truth number two, man is sinful. I want you to see that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Look what John says in verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In the morning, you can step on the scale and you can look down at the number that shows up and you can be unsatisfied with that number. And one of the things that you could do is you could take a Sharpie and you could write the number you prefer right there on the, on the screen. You'd be deceiving yourself, but you could do it. You might open your bank account, bank app, pull it up, look at the number and say, I don't like that number. It's not the number I want to see. You could screenshot it, hit the right buttons, take a screenshot, go into your photo editor. You could erase that number. You could write in a different number. You could take it to the bank and you could show them, look, this is my balance. You could do that. You're deceiving yourself. I've heard Corey Spear give this illustration. As you drive down the road and your check engine light pops up on your dashboard, you're well within your rights to take a sticky note and put it on top of that light. And to say, I don't want to see that light. I don't want to think about that light. I don't want, I don't want to have to deal with that. You're deceiving yourself. Likewise, John says, you can say that you have no sin. You know as well as I do that people try to do that in a number of different ways today. You can say that you have no sin. But if that's what you say, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. You're fooling yourself. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible says in the early chapters of Romans that we all know this. I realize that a lot of people today try to deny it, but the book of Romans says, look, behind all your justification, rationalization, behind all your excuses, people know the truth about their sin. They know it. They know it experientially. They know it intuitively. They know it without question. Most people today are willing to sort of land in the middle and say, you're right, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person. I think for that mindset, it's helpful to remember what the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever keeps the law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. Now again... You can say, that's not fair, and you can take your sharpie after you write on your scale, and you can strike that verse out from the Gospel of James, or you can listen to what the Word of God says. You know that this is how it works, not just with God, but on a human level. If you go home tonight, and you break into your neighbor's house, and you steal their television, and the cops are called and you're arrested, and you're taken to court, you can stand up in court and say, Your Honor, I did not murder my neighbor. You can stand up in court and say, Your Honor, I didn't kidnap anyone or hold anyone for ransom. And those things might be true. It might be true in your life that you haven't committed every single sin that a human being could possibly commit. That may be true. I think you've committed more than you think you have. 
And I also think that if you've broken the law of God, you're a lawbreaker. And that means you're accountable to the lawgiver. And the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you understand the tension that we've created so far in this passage and in our lives? God is holy, and we are not. We're sinful people. So that brings us to the third truth that I want you to see this morning. Jesus is the answer. And the answer that Jesus provides is this. Jesus provided propitiation for sinners in his death on the cross. Look at what John says in verse 7. If we walk in the light, he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another and the blood, the blood, the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. There is a way for sinful people to be made clean and to be made whole. We sing about it in an old hymn. We sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We sing and ask the question, what can make me whole again? And we say the same thing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. You understand that the Bible says that the natural reaction of the holy God towards sinful people is wrath and anger. Sometimes we try to soften what the Bible says and we say, yes, that's true. God is angry with sin, but He loves the sinner. But do you know what the Bible says? The Bible actually says that God is angry about sin and He is angry with sinners who sin. The Bible says that left to ourselves, we are children of wrath. And what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 10, and what the Apostle Paul says once in the book of Romans and once in the book of Hebrews is something remarkable. It's that Jesus offered propitiation. He offered propitiation. That's one of those words like holiness that it's hard to put it into English words, so we just have this long, awkward word, propitiation. But what it really means is that Jesus offered a sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God on behalf of His people. He has satisfied God's wrath in His anger. And again, we sing about this as a church from time to time. We sing a song called In Christ Alone, and we say, In Christ Alone, who took on flesh the fullness of God in helpless babe. That's Christmas. That's the miracle of the incarnation. It's a gift of love and righteousness. He was scorned by the ones He came to save, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. That's a song, that's a verse about propitiation. God Himself came. God took the form of a man. He lived a life of perfect righteousness that we failed to live. He became sin for us. And the wrath of God that should fall on you and me as the people of God was poured out on the Son. Propitiation was made and the wrath of God is satisfied. From time to time as your pastor, I feel like I need to warn you about things. I need to warn you that there are pastors and preachers and authors and podcasters and bloggers aplenty 
who do not want you to believe that God is wrathful about anything. They don't like the idea of it. They don't like the sound of it. It doesn't strike them as right or good or appropriate. They downplay the holiness of God. They downplay the horror of our sin. And they tell you, God is not angry. And you just have a choice. You can allow these sorts of people to tickle your ears and flatter you. It's no different than looking at the scale that you've written on with a Sharpie. It's no different than driving around with a post-it note on your dashboard. It's no different than editing a screenshot of your bank account. You can allow them to tickle your ears or you can listen to what the Word of God says. He is holy. We are sinners. And He is angry about sin and He is angry with sinners. The good news of the gospel is not that it's no big deal. The good news of the gospel is that it's the biggest deal possible and it's such a big deal that only God can fix it. And that's what He's done. He's come Himself. He sent His Son to die on a cross for our sins to provide propitiation. One more truth. God is holy. We're sinful. Jesus is the answer. We're called to repent and to believe. Our response to Jesus is ongoing repentance and faith. Ongoing repentance and faith. It is certainly true that if you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you've never agreed with God about your sin problem, it's certainly true. There needs to be a moment in your life when that happens for the very first time. None of us are born Christian. By God's grace, there must be a moment when you confess your sin to God, you agree with God about your sin, and you say, I am trusting in the finished work of God's Son for my salvation. That has to happen for the first time, sometime, for everyone. The emphasis of 1 John is that once that happens in your life, it ought to continue to happen. You ought to continue agreeing with God about your sin. You ought to continue confessing sin to God. You ought to continue believing in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's not that you might lose your salvation if you stop. It's not that, oh, you messed up today, you've got to get your salvation back. It's just that when God makes you alive, you're dead in your sins and God makes you alive, the rest of your life, the trajectory of your life is changed. And there's a moment where you repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus. And then the rest of your life is marked by repentance and faith in Jesus. Look what John says in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness. That idea of walking shows up all the way through 1 John. John's not saying if you claim to love Jesus and you commit one single sin, you're done. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you claim to love Jesus and you just walk in darkness, you chase sin, you're unrepentant, you're unremorseful, that's the pattern and the trajectory of your life, you're fooling yourself. Ongoing repentance, ongoing faith. Look what he says in verse 7. If we walk in the light... As He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Does that mean that we have to walk perfectly in the light 
so that the blood of Jesus will cleanse us. No, if we walked perfectly in the light, we wouldn't need to be cleansed. We're sinful people. But what John is saying is, you know the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from your sin if the trajectory of your life is not towards darkness, but it's toward light. Not that you always sin, or not that you always do what's right, but what is the overarching direction and orientation of your life? Look what he says in verse 9. Fascinating. If we confess our sins... Confessing your sins means you admit your sins to God. It means you agree with God that your sins are sins. You stop blaming other people for your sins. You, tr- you stop trying to pretend like your sins aren't that big of a deal. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this is what I want you to do just for a second. I want you to close your Bible. Maybe put your finger right there. Close your Bible. This is a closed book test. Closed book. Don't turn your Bible app on. I want you to try to imagine verse 9 as if you've never heard it before. And I want you to think, if you had not just read it out of 1 John, how you might fill in the blanks. If we confess our sins, God is blank and blank to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If I gave you a pop test and you had been sort of indoctrinated in Christian things, but you didn't know 1 John 1, 9, and I just said to you, just fill in the blanks, what might John be saying here? If we confess our sins... God is what to forgive us? I think a lot of people intuitively think, well, if we confess our sins, He's gracious and merciful. That sounds right, doesn't it? If we confess our sins, is God gracious? He is. Is He merciful? He is merciful. And those are the things that we associate with God when we think about forgiveness, His grace in His mercy. That's not what John says here, is it? You can open your Bible again and you can look at verse 9. What he says is, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. Faithful and just. You've read verse 9. You know it says faithful and just. Those words don't shock you, but they're supposed to shock you. They're not the words that you would expect to be there. Look, I have three daughters. We listen to a lot of Frozen songs in the car. And there's a song from Frozen where Hans and Anna are singing together. And they're singing about how they're, they're on the same path, their minds are connecting, they think the same way. And there's a part of the song that says this, it's crazy what we finish each other's Now, if you listen to the song the first time, you think they're going to say, we finish each other's sentences, because that's what the saying is. When they use the word sandwich, it sticks in your brain, and you say, oh, that's kind of cute, that's kind of funny, and it just lodges in your brain. That's what Disney wants it to do, lodge in your brain, so that when you get in the car with your kids, they say, play that song again, play that song again. Let's hear it one more time, let's sing it. It's a brilliant literary technique, you understand? You're reading along, singing along, you expect one word, the author gives you a different word, and when they give you the word you don't expect, it just sticks in your brain. 
I'm telling you this. I know you're familiar with 1 John 1, 9, but that's what John has done here. If he said, God is gracious and merciful and he will forgive you, you wouldn't bat an eye at that. You would say, absolutely, that's true. Amen, praise God, thank you for his grace and his mercy. That's not what he says. He's faithful and he's just. You know that God says to his people many times in the Old Testament, he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And in the very next breath, he says to his people, he will not clear the guilty. He's just. He's not a bad judge. He's a good judge, and he does what's right. So the question is, how is it that a faithful and just God can simply forgive us of our sins when we confess them? And the answer is not, that's just what he does. The answer is Jesus. Jesus is always the answer at church, right? He's always the answer in Sunday school. He's always the answer when it comes to the gospel. He's the center of what we believe to be the good news, that Jesus provided propitiation. There are no sins being swept under the rug of heaven. Those sins were laid on Jesus. And the wrath of God was satisfied. If you believe that Jesus died for sinners like you on the cross, then you come to God and you confess your sins with boldness and with confidence. He is gracious and merciful, but He's also faithful and just to accept the finished work of His Son on your behalf and to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That good news has to be the heart of what we preach and what we teach. Not clean yourself up, God will be happy with you. Not do this or do that, and maybe you can get into heaven someday. But that God is holy and that we're sinners and that the only hope we have is the Lord Jesus Christ who lived for us and who died for us. And the call on our lives is to agree with God about our sin, to confess our sin to Him, and to put our faith in the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's got to be the center of our preaching. That's got to be the center of our teaching. It's got to be the center of our gospel sharing, whether it's here in Odessa or in Kenya or anywhere else around the world. It's got to be the center of what we sing about and what we worship God for when we gather together as His people. And that gospel message is really the heart of the two ordinances we celebrate as Christians. We'll end with this. The people of God are commanded to remember gospel truth through two ordinances. The first one is baptism. Baptism is the ordinance that celebrates our initial confession of sin and trusting in Jesus. A person needs to be baptized once and only once. When they have made this agreement with God about their sin and they have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, baptism is the picture that you have done that. You've repented of your sin, you've agreed with God about your sin, you've confessed your sin, and you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus. That's baptism. The second ordinance is the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is the celebration of our ongoing confession of sin 
and our ongoing trusting of Jesus. You don't just take the Lord's Supper once, you take it over and over and over again after your baptism. And it's an ongoing reminder to you that your only hope in life and death is the grace, the mercy, the faithfulness, the justice of God that forgives us of our sins because of what Christ has done in bearing our sins in His body on the tree, in shedding His blood to ransom us and to purchase us from death. So this morning we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. If you have the elements, you can get those ready. And I'm going to give you just a minute to pray and to think about these gospel truths and to prepare your heart as we gather together around the Word of God to remember and to celebrate what Christ has done on our behalf. You take a moment to pray, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.